0: Yama, Mali Nagaya. From Mamma Mia, I'm Gamilaroi and Dungati woman Mali Silva, and you're listening to Titters for Titters, the podcast where we share stories from excellent Indigenous women. Picture this. You're driving along the Pacific Highway outside of Brisbane and spot a young woman walking alone, making attempts to hitchhike. It's the early morning and being naturally curious, you decide to stop. The girl tells you she desperately needs to be in Brisbane City by 11am because she's got an important meeting with a publisher. She says she might even have a chance of getting a book deal and she's only 19 years old. In 2003, that young woman was Tara June Winch and thankfully, after a few attempts, she did get to that meeting. And a few short years later, at the age of 23, Tara would publish her debut novel, Swallow the Air, Not only would that book launch her writing career into critical acclaim, but it would also become a prescribed English text for school syllabuses all over the country that is still used to this day. And that's exactly where I first came across it. Although she no longer needs to hitchhike to meetings with publishers, Tara says she still loves to travel and has a deep connection to the land as a way of informing her writing. Tara now lives in France with her 13-year-old daughter Lila and her husband, and earlier this year, she released her latest book, *The Yield*, which is a poetic ode to the Wiradjuri language. Tara June Winch is a winner of a David Unifon Award and a Victorian Premier's Literary Award. She's a mother and an incredible writer with a deep connection to the immense and often beautiful innocence and power the land can have. And she joins me now. Were you a big reader as a, as a kid, or no, yeah? Not at all. What was your interaction with stories? Was it kind of you were just making things up at school?
1: I think so, yeah. There must have been books around, but not. it's not like a family of readers. Mm -hmm. My brother' first book he ever read was Swallow the Air. Dad hasn't read it. Yeah, he doesn't read. Okay. But he'll listen to the audiobook of the new book. Mm. And I think it's like one of the few books that my mum's read. And I mean... It's just a different type of person. It's mm. like there's not a good or bad. It's just a, to illustrate that there was literally no books around. There were, however, a set of encyclopedias mm. that they'd
0: bought from a travelling salesman because that still used to happen. Are these the like Britannica encyclopedias? Yeah. I had the same set that my dad bought off a salesman as the well. The spine was black and gold. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but when I'd have
1: school assignments, I'd cut the pictures out of the encyclop- like Yeah, that yeah. That was bad. I loved it, but it was okay to take from it. That was the love level of these encyclopedias. Wow, that's
0: interesting. I say it's interesting that your family weren't readers or anything because it's obvious then that you just had this innate storyteller within you that was always going to be there regardless of the outside influences.
1: Yeah, because there weren't any outside influences. Yeah. Yeah. And I've never studied literature. I've never done a writing course. Mm -hmm. Wow.
0: So was there a point where you kind of realised that being an author – was a career or was that as you were pursuing your first novel? Um, it was
1: more a super serendipitous story. I would come back from living on a goat farm and dishwashing in England and I'd come back to Australia as a 19-year-old. And I'd been writing all my teenage years. I'd been writing long letters and postcards and writing sort of short bits of prose that I thought were poetry and I was just writing these thoughts that I had and reflections from lots of travel and I decided that I was going to go and live in Brisbane because I hadn't ever been to Brisbane (laughs) and I used to hang out in new cities at the libraries because at this stage at 19 I was into books and I'd hang out at libraries because you could get free tea and coffee most of the time (laughs) or cordial. I was into cordial. (laughs) I could use the internet because we had internet then (laughs) and read books and they'd have like a sofa to chill out on. And one time in the State Library of Queensland, I saw a notice, a paper notice on the wall that said Young Writer's Prize, $1,000. First prize. (laughs) And runner-up, $500, which is like 2003, I guess, or four, two 2004. That's a lot of money. And I had none of it. Mm-hmm. I just got some, a job as a waitress or dishwasher. I can't remember. Different restaurants all around Brisbane. So I sat down and wrote my first ever short story, which was the first chapter of Swallow the Air. And then entered it, didn't win, came second. One of the judges was Nick Earls, who wrote Zigzag Street, and he passed on the story to an editor at University of Queensland Press and said, look at this, and she then rang me and asked me on the phone if I had any more of these stories. And by that point, actually, because of the second prize win, I got this huge confidence and decided to enrol in Indigenous Studies at Southern Cross University in Lismore. And so I went down by that stage, I was in Lismore. And she rang and said, did I have any more stories? And I said, no, but I've got some poems that I've been <laughs> writing for years and collect them and carried them around with me for all these years. And she said, no, we're not interested in that. Anyway, she said, come and meet me for breakfast at a cafe in the West End in... Brisbane at 9am. And I didn't have a car at that stage. And so I had to get up at like 5.30 or something and start hitchhiking all the way up to Brisbane. And it was just one of those really unlucky days where every single car that I'd get picked up in was taking the next exit, basically more or less. And so it must have been about 20 cars to get up to Brisbane to make it in time. And every time I got in the car... They'd say, oh, so why hitchhiking in Brisbane first thing in the morning? And I'd say, I've got a meeting with a publisher <laughs> about maybe writing a book. And I think they must have thought, who's this <laughs> new, like, delusional <laughs> lunatic? And uh, yeah, the rest is history, basically. She encouraged me to write that story more, swallow the air, mm. to expand that story And I knew I could because it was about me and my brother. I mean, I made it fiction, but that was the essence of it, was
0: Billy and me. So Swallow the Air came to me when I was in uh, year 12. I went to a public school in the Sutherland Shire where I was, aside from my sister, the only (laughs) Aboriginal student there. And prior to this, I mean, I'm the opposite in the sense that I was a massive bookworm. Books were everything and when my mum often says that all she, she didn't care what we did with our lives. All she wanted was for me and my sister to be readers. And that's what we are. And prior to year 12, I hadn't been given a prescribed text in English that I enjoyed. Right. Because, you know, when you're forced to read something you kind of go, oh, this is annoying. And then this little book, Swallow the Air, falls into my lap. And I take it home that afternoon, start it and finish it that night and in all honesty i can say that novel was incredibly influential in me pursuing a creative writing degree and now with a lot of reluctance calling myself a writer so when i was told that you would be here and be able to have this conversation with me it is such an honor it is such an honor because that novel meant so much to me because for me it, it was a lot about identity as well and as much as I've always been so incredibly proud of being an Aboriginal person I felt incredibly alone by the end of high school and having that there and having this this beautiful but you know sad in some parts and uplifting in others story in my hands about a young Aboriginal woman like me who you know was light-skinned and and this that and the other and who lived near Saltwater and I lived in Nicaragua right it 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 was so, so important and I think instilled confidence in me that maybe one day I could have a book as well.
1: That's really touching, Molly. Thank you.
0: No, thank you.
1: And so I had, it was about six or eight weeks until the closing of the David Unipon Award which is for unpublished manuscript by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, and she rang me every single day. I was crying over the phone, and saying I couldn't do this, I couldn't, I couldn't finish it in time. And she just believed in me, and she rang yeah every day and basically just forced me to get it out in this really short amount of time, obviously. And we literally handed it in like one minute till closing. It was right on the line. And so 12 months after coming second in the Young Writers Prize, which was for Queensland, State state, state of Queensland, young people, 12 months later I was back at the Queensland Premier's Awards as they were (laughs) known then and was on stage to receive... $15,000 check and a publishing contract with UQP. Wow. So it's just – it is a magical, serendipitous story. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the only real job I've had, so I just sort of stuck with it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. It's
1: sort of – I didn't have an idea that I was going to become a writer. I Mm. was just writing and I knew I just wanted to travel. I was really always – and I still want to travel. And I still am actually trying to work out how I fit in the context of the world and how people fit together. And, yeah, I mean, it's just on my mind all the time. Yeah. And travel helps with, I guess it creates more questions, but helps you unravel your your soul. Yeah. Yeah. The four dimensions
0: of who you are. It's interesting you talk about travel because you're actually based in France now, aren't you? Yep. Yeah. So, how does France differ in terms of lifestyle in comparison to East Winuna? <laughs>
1: yeah, it's pretty different. Although, we got out of Paris because we couldn't afford it anymore. Mm. And we were sleeping in the lounge room, which a lot of parents do. The kid gets the one bedroom, and all the and the parents oh, wow. have the double bed in the <laughs> in the ledge. like a lot of friends. At the, wow! But the problem was we had to pass through Lula's room to use the bathroom, mm. and he was <laughs> like, "I think we should leave yeah. the city. I think it's a little too expensive." <laughs> yeah. And my husband found a. Job in another city called Nantes, where the writer Jules Verne is originally from, mm-hmm. and it's, it was closer to the coast. And we found a little cottage to rent on the outs- on the outskirts in the countryside, and we've stayed in that area since. So we've made a home in this very like know, sort of remote region in the Loire Atlantic. In this, yeah, four hours drive from Paris, southwest. Mm. Yeah, that's where we live now. Yeah. But I think we'll come back to Australia. I want to. And I do come back here often because I can't be away for too long. And actually, as I get older, I want to be back more and more. That urge to return is stronger. I think perhaps because you've dealt with so many of your regrets and guilt and your issues in yourself as you get older. And so you've come to terms with the past and you've reckoned with who you've become. And at that point, home isn't a torture or it isn't as scary and unmanageable. Home is a place regardless of the bad Mm -hmm. and regardless of the heaviness of memory, mm. it becomes a part of you that you accept. Wow. <sighs> Do you find that your daughter, was
0: she born in France?
1: She was born in Malambimbi.
0: Oh, Malambimbi. <laughs> oh, no way. So is her identity, does she feel more French or having lived there for, for a while or how does she interact, I guess, with her uh, Aboriginality as well?
1: I'll just guess because I can't speak on behalf of her. Mm. She's... 13-year-old, she's got her own thinking. Still figuring it all out. Yeah, and and it's like secret and separate from me. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But she's also been at school and lived for a few years in New York, so she's got a really mixed identity, I guess. Mm -hmm. And she's going through that time of her life where she's questioning herself and her friendships and the world and reading lots of George Orwell and (laughs) trying to like... (laughs) <laughs> she's gone grand, basically. Love it. Yeah. Um, she's like, oh, mom, uh, I found this really cool new band. It's called Green Day. <laughs> <laughs> new. Yeah. And yeah, it's her journey. Yeah, that's cool. But it was actually super interesting to see her mother tongue change.
0: Mm, yeah.
1: So because we came to France when she was a five-year-old, just almost six, and. I watched her go from, you know, a little bit of basic French, a song or some numbers to this being her mother tongue. This is now the language that she hears 99% of the day and dreams in and thinks in and reflects in. And her speaking English is her translating her French thoughts into English. Wow. Yeah, it was incredible to watch that. Yeah. Like, if she chooses a film, she'd prefer to watch it in friend. That's how you know. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's
0: the indicator. Yep. Wow, that's yeah. Wow. It's really interesting. So tell us about The Yields. And, I mean, I've started reading it because my life is crazy. I'm only about a chapter in. But it's really interesting. It seems like there's a few voices in there. And yep. Yeah. So The
1: yield is the most difficult novel to... <laughs> To blurb. Yeah, okay. For sure. <laughs> First of all, so I'm not going to get this clear. It's going to sound like, why doesn't she know her elevator pitch? Because <laughs> there couldn't possibly be one. Mm. So the book is about 500 acres of land that borders a river and it's called the Morrumbi River, a fictional river. And I wanted to tell the story of the history of that piece of land. And I used that technique because I wanted to actually tell the story of Australia from an Indigenous perspective, but that was too big. Yeah. (laughs) So I condensed my focus and my metaphor for Australia was these 500 acres. And so it's told in three narrative strands. One is the grandfather, Poppy Albert Gondawindi, who at the beginning of the novel is knowing he knows that his death is imminent and he wants to pass on and tell his family all the things he's ever remembered, which he tells them via a dictionary in his language, which is my language, the Wiradjuri. And so throughout the whole novel, the entire narrative weaves in Wiradjuri and English but it's not laid out exactly like a dictionary because there's really long entries and sometimes kind of short explanations of a word, but it might also go off on a tangent and lead to other little tales about him as a boy and him as a man and his ancestors. And he's telling the story of his ancestors Through time travel, he calls it. And, you know, he's telling about how when he was taken away and he was in the boys' home, the ancestors would come and, you know, his great-great-great-great-grandfather would come and take him out and the river would just appear and they would walk around the river and Mm -hmm. teach him about how to fish for eels or how to start a fire, like little nice snippets. So that runs, that's the heart of the, the book. It's like a river, that like the River Mur- Murambi running through the novel. And then there's another narrative of his granddaughter, August Gondawindi, who's returned from overseas after a 10-year absence for the funeral of her grandfather. And it's the contemporary action told in the third person and her reckoning with her aunties and her nana and the place that was really difficult for her as a child. And she knows that there's talk that her poppy had been writing a dictionary and she really is a real bookish person like you were. Mm -hmm. And she's trying to find this dictionary because she thinks that he has a secret for her and he does. And then there's a big quest action and there's a mining company involved and there's trying to save the land and lots of secrets exposed. And then there's a final narrative written in letters to the British Society of Ethnography from Reverend Ferdinand Greenleaf, who opened the mission on the same 500 acres of land back in the 1880s, and he's writing in 1915 as a German enemy of the state. So he's writing about him as a missionary And starting this mission and he's writing as a man who doesn't want to be sent to the gallows without having said all the things. So he's truth telling as well, but a different type of delusional, idealistic, religious questioning man at the end of his life.
0: Wow wow there's so much in there that is a lot of work for, for for you I'm I mean I'm so excited to be able to dive into it properly how long have you been working on this one because it, it's your third novel it's my third book the second one was the short story collection yeah after the carnage and it is significantly bigger than the the first two so yeah how long have you been working on that one
1: so the idea for the yield I came about in 2004 when I was researching when I did some research for Swallow the Air so this was once I'd got the publishing contract it still wasn't a complete novel it still needed more and so I knew I had to go back onto country I had to meet relatives that I had never met before mm. and I had to do what May does mm. to go and find family Yeah, yeah, and when I was driving down, I remember driving like a friend's Corolla and there was this locust storm and I'd never seen anything like that growing up on the coast. Mm. And I knew of locust storms in the Bible. It was really a biblical moment. Yeah, it was really yeah. an intense moment because it was splattering all over the windshield and I just carried that for years. But I was going out there to understand this country of my father's, where my father was from. And a while out there, I took a one-day Wiradjuri course, language course, which was in Wagga Wagga. Mm -hmm. And they bought Dr. Uncle Stan Grant Sr. and Dr. John Rudder's book at the time, which was a very thin yellow A4 Wiradjuri dictionary. And I used that experience to add Wiradjuri words into Air. There's about three or four words there. For instance, there's the word Bila, which means river. Um, but I was saddened that I didn't put more in there. I knew that this, I felt incredibly moved reading these words. Mm. I felt such a strong sense of belonging and healing and it was like a balm for everything my father missed out on. And so since then, which is pre-Swallow the Year, mm-hmm. I'd carried that idea around. We were working on it when I did the mentorship with Wally which was in 2008-2009 we were working on this idea. It was called The Lunatic, The Lover and The Poet and The Lunatic was this linguist. So it just would morph. I knew it was there but was so many different things over this whole time and it was, it got to a point where I really questioned whether I was, of course I didn't think of myself as a writer Mm -hmm. at this time Mm -hmm. when I wasn't publishing anything and struggling so much with the yield and what it would be that, I just thought, I can't get to it. I know it's there, but I couldn't reach the essence of it until me- more years later. Once I could talk to August and once I could rehear Poppy's voice, then it started to gain a momentum. Um, and 5,000 words were published in Westerly Edition, Indigenous Edition, in 2016. And so... I really wanted to, I just always knew that I was writing a book about language, essentially, but I just didn't know how to construct it. I couldn't pull it together. I couldn't I couldn't get my head around it. I felt like a failure. I was doing other work. I was super broke for years. I mean, we're always broke writers. Yeah. We don't do it <laughs> for the money. No. And finally, at a certain point... There was this sort of pressure became really clear, and I had these, you know, there was this quote above my desk actually that said something like to the effect of, "Writing is when two different ideas crash together perfectly." And once I had those three different ideas that I could saw I saw crash together perfectly, then it was. You know, the last two, three years of pretty much nonstop. Once it's there, you've got to chase it. Otherwise, it'll, the idea and the full story will run off into the horizon and you'll lose it and you'll question yourself. And when you start, if, there's, if you don't put the pressure on, constantly get onto it. Mm. It'll run to the horizon and then you'll question yourself and you'll think, oh, no, I need another character. Oh, that's wrong. It's mm. too it, – time travel, you're not a Latin American writer. <laughs> like. And so I knew I just had to go back to the desk to get it all out in one big go. And I gained 35 kilograms doing that. And I also broke my heart mm. completely, of course. Mm. But – once you're like in there you can see the story you've just got to run at it and I'd look in the mirror and go well, well I'm changing and and now it's finished yes and it's on paper and you can touch it and hold it in your hand or you and, can
0: smell it I love smelling books
1: oh I haven't smelled it yet <laughs> I'm going to go straight home and smell it and that's just it's really cool that people are reading it and There seems to be like a nice, cool interest in it. Mm. And it's important to me that, that it has readers beyond this book because when First Nations writers write, we have our ancestors and we have a burden, we carry a lot of the past on our backs and that naturally comes out in our writing. So we can't avoid to be political and this book, in a sense, is political Mm -hmm. but it's a story too. It's a story with characters and with a soul and with a heart but one thing I really wanted to draw attention to was language and I could see from because of the way it affected me When I got in touch with the Wiradjuri language, the way it affected my sense of self was such a balm. It was a complete balm of the heart. And as I did more research, do other people feel this when they connect with culture and country and language, when they roll the words on their tongue, when they say things like yinyamara, which means respect, gentleness, kindness, everything in one, Do people feel that? And it was evident there are programs, small programs in different communities where reconnecting with revitalised languages is part of healing and rehabilitation Mm. for communities. And I'd love to see Indigenous languages spoken in schools. It just boggles my mind. There's early childhood programs called Ella that are in a lot of preschools where two, three, four-year-olds can learn Mandarin or Greek or Spanish perhaps. And why not incorporate Indigenous language into these apps and give kids this opportunity to appreciate and understand from such an early age that they're on someone else's country. And thinking about... I've travelled so much, and wherever I've gone, I've always made sure that I've picked up a few words in language, in their language, in that country. So I could say, je m'appelle Taha, bonjour. We do it for actually two reasons. One, we do it because it's practical. It can help us get by, make life easier. And the other reason we do it is because of respect, respect. And when Australians realise they're on someone else's country already, then isn't it respectful
0: to learn a few of their words too? And that can't be overstated enough. Completely. I think across the board there is such an innate power in words and when it comes in the form of languages that were stripped from us and caused a lot of the trauma that we feel on us now, even still, generations down the track that can only be healed with those words as they come back to us.
1: Yeah, it's definitely part of the healing process. Yeah,
0: yeah, it is a a tremendous part of it. Well, thank you so much for sharing this part of your story. It is such a privilege to be able to listen to it and now to be able to share it with a few more people and that's really exciting and thank you for your work. And I hope that a lot of people will not only listen to this story and think about the power of our stories um, but also engage with your newest one thanks for having me my pleasure thank you for listening to titters for titters find tara's book the yield at any good bookstore if you like this show please share it with someone you know and leave us a five-star rating and review in apple podcasts if you want to see more from titters for titters Follow us on Instagram by searching Tidders for Tidders. Tidders for Tidders is produced by Eliza Ratliff and Amelia Navasquez. I'm Mali Silva. See you next time.